Thank you, Tyler. Next week is uh, a potluck. Uh, so there's a, a sign-up sheet that will be uh, in the kitchen if you can help. There's lots of people needed for extra help for setup and serving and takedown. So if you're willing, please find your way there to sign up for that. And uh, we're running membership classes uh, that are valuable not just for people that are saying right now they want to be a member, but for anyone who wants to understand and talk about what our church believes and how our church is run. This is an opportune time for you to hear that and have your questions answered. So come talk to me if you're interested in that. And, and welcome this morning if you're visiting. We're in the most difficult part of the Bible. Not the most difficult part to understand, mind you, but the most difficult part to be comfortable with. And uh, we're halfway through. This is the second part of this message uh, in Romans 9, 1 to 16. We're starting at verse 6. But uh, salvation history had taken a surprising turn. The covenant promises of God had come to Israel. Israel was God's adopted son. To Israel was granted the presence of God's own glory, the law, and the rightful worship of God. But most of the people of Israel, to whom the promises of salvation had been given, refused to recognize the fulfillment of those promises. At the same time, Gentiles, who were considered to be excluded from the covenant, were embracing the one in whom these promises had come to fruition, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul insists here in our passage that this turn of events should not be unexpected at all, but is exactly in accordance with God's Word and His promises. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul uses more direct quotes of the Old Testament Scripture than in the remainder of Romans and in the rest of his New Testament writings combined. This is the most concentrated place in the New Testament for quotations of the Old Testament. In fact, there's more quotations here in these chapters than in an entire other third of the New Testament. Paul has to show what the Word of God says about becoming a member of God's true spiritual people. Because if the Old Testament teaches that belonging to ethnic Israel in and of itself makes a person a member of God's true Israel, then Paul's gospel is in jeopardy. In fact, it can be proven to be wrong if the Old Testament is teaching something different. This is the Word of God. Jesus himself identified the Old Testament as the very Word of God. And so Paul has to show what the Word of God says about becoming a member of God's true spiritual people. One is not simply born of the flesh into the true people of God. Salvation does not come through biology. This would be a contradiction of the gospel. The same can also be said from what Paul had covered earlier about circumcision or baptism. One does not become a member of God's true spiritual people through any rite or ritual that they or their parents choose for themselves. Salvation does not come through ceremony. This would be a contradiction of the gospel. So also, one does not become a member of God's true spiritual people through catechism. 
being schooled and trained in the law or in doctrine. Salvation does not come through personal decision or mental assent. This would be a contradiction of the gospel. No, all of these were essential Jewish characteristics, and yet they did not bring salvation. And so in Romans 9, 6 to 29, the first part of which we're going to look at this morning, Paul argues extensively from Scripture that belonging to God's true spiritual people, true Israel, is and always has been based on God's gracious and sovereign call and not on ethnic identity. Now, some people would tell you about these passages that they say nothing at all about the election of individuals to salvation but that what is described here is the election of nations because some of these characters, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, they are all patriarchs of their people groups. In fact, their names stand in place for their people at times in Scripture. But this should trigger your nonsense alarm straight off the bat for what nation is not also composed of individuals. And Paul uses the case of these patriarchs and applies them here to the issue of the individual salvation of Jewish people and and Gentiles being added in as well. These stories show that ethnicity was not the crucial qualification for salvation. God has not in any way rejected His own people, true Israel, and yet many individual Jews had failed to trust in Christ and so be saved. These chapters are in every way about individual election and salvation. And we begin with the thesis statement for all of chapters 9 through 11, Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So Paul has to make it clear And he makes it clear here that the the near wholesale rejection of the Jewish Messiah by the Jewish people is an issue that needs to be answered in order to show that God's Word and ultimately God Himself can be trusted. God has adopted Israel, revealed His glory to her, bound her to Him with His covenants, given to her His law, the temple worship, and His very great promises. Does this all now mean nothing? Has God revoked these blessings and gone back on His word to Israel? And if so, this has some dire consequences for more than just the Jews. For how could Christians trust such a God to fulfill His promises to them? The answer, then, which defends the credibility of God, is that not all who were Israel's descendants, the Jews, belong to the true spiritual people of God to whom these promises were made and will, of course, be kept. And Paul has said something similar in Romans 2, 28-29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This distinction, is an, it's an important distinction here, a distinction between ethnic Israel and real spiritual Israel. 
or the one who is merely an outward Jew in contrast with the one who is a true Jew inwardly. And it can also be found clearly in the teachings of Jesus, who answered the Pharisees when they boasted, Abraham is our father, John 8.39. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. A few verses later, John 8.44, he adds, you are of your father the devil. And then in verse 47 explains, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Strong words to those who are sometimes referred to as the people of God, the sons of Abraham. Again, in Revelation 2.9, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that he knows they are being slandered by those who say they are Jews but are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Strong words. He says them again to the church in Philadelphia, Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so the New Testament has a radical distinction between those who are ethnic Israel the ethnic Jews, and those who are true Jews, true Israel of God. And it is a deadly, serious distinction. For Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11 to 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So being a a part of Israel has never been about ethnicity alone. It has always been about a covenant relationship with the one true God, which is lived out in obedience to God's commands. Paul labels the multi-ethnic church the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. He refers to the church as the true circumcision, Philippians 3.3, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then again, as the true family of Abraham, Romans 14, even as they, sorry, Romans 4, 16, even as they are grafted into Israel, which we'll see in Romans chapter 11. And it is not only Paul who uses terms like this, But Peter refers to the diverse church, Jew and Gentile alike, with all of the titles for Israel. Elect exiles, 1 Peter 1.1. And in 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, the people for God's own possession. Each of these takes something that was written about Israel in the Old Testament and applies them to the Jewish and Gentile church, as Jews and Gentiles are both grafted into Israel through Jesus Christ. The apostle, or sorry, James, goes one further, referring to the church, James 1.1, as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Paul here is making two points then. It is not all biological Israel that constitutes true spiritual Israel, and it is not 
only biological Israel that constitutes true spiritual Israel. Making the gospel the fulfillment and not the negation of God's word to Israel. He keeps his promises to Israel. God will not fail to keep his promises. Why should we trust his promises? Well, we know he always keeps his promises. And so Paul's argument here is God has kept his promise to Israel. But who is Israel? Even if many of the Jews do not accept the gospel and enjoy its benefits, this does not mean God's word has failed to achieve its purpose. By rejecting the gospel, they show that they are not true Jews. In their case, it is evident that, as Paul puts it, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And this distinction is not an invention of Paul, nor a, teaching of Je- nor a new teaching of Jesus, but it is consistent with the Word of God throughout the Old Testament, which Paul will rigorously exhibit through his extensive use of the Scriptures. He explains that the rejection of the gospel by so many of his kinsmen according to the flesh was a result of God's choice. Only believing Israelites are chosen for salvation. Only believing Israelites are Abraham's true children, not ethnic Israel as a whole. Romans 9 6b to verse 9 For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, both verses 7 and 8 restate the main thesis of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It can't be more clear. And let me, let me pause for a second to tell you, church, I, this isn't because of anything currently going on in the geopolitical world. This isn't because I have a dog in the race. This is just we're, we're expositing the Word of God. This is what the Word of God teaches, and this is where we are at this point. And if that changes how people feel because they have a fundamentally flawed theology about who Israel is, then that, that's not my goal, but that certainly could happen. We, we're just looking at the Word of God and seeing what it says, and it, and it says it really clearly here, and so we can't just skip over that today because it might offend someone. Verse 6 says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7 agrees. It says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Verse 8 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Stated three times in three ways. Can't be stated any more clearly or emphatically than Paul does here. Genetic descent from Abraham does not make one a child of God. Being in Abraham's lineage does not make ethnic Jews part of the people of God. Being a physical descendant doesn't qualify one for the promise. This is because God's promise is given sovereignly, not biologically. God is not a racist. 
Paul begins where everyone seeking to define Israel must begin, with Abraham. God's call and his call of and his promises to Abraham were the basis for both physical and spiritual Israel. The Jews looked to their genetic descent from Abraham as the source of their spiritual benefit, the proof of their covenant status before God as his chosen people and heirs of Abraham's promise. And many evangelicals today make the same assumption. But this is the very assumption that Paul calls into question. To be a child of Abraham in a physical sense, Paul is saying, is not necessarily to be his descendant in a a spiritual sense. Salvation is not a Jewish birthright. We could say the same thing about the church. You can grow up in the church, be born to good Christian parents, and salvation is not a birthright. It comes by the sovereign choice of God. And so to prove his emphatic point, Paul turns to Genesis 21, 12 and 18, 14 first. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. And despite that clear biological connection, and despite Abraham's own prayer and request that the covenant should focus on him and then even include him, God rejected Ishmael and he was excluded from the covenant of salvation which God made with Abraham. God's reply to Abraham was Genesis 21:12, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." Now, named is not a bad translation here. It is a good translation, but it obfuscates the connections to what Paul has said earlier. Wherever else this word is used in Romans, it is translated "called." It is part of Paul's description of God in Romans 4.17. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not already exist. This is a helpful definition of what Paul is saying here in verse 7. Through Isaac shall your offspring be called. His very next usage is in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Romans, this call denotes an effective call that creates what is desired. It is the creator, all-powerful God at work through his word. The promise of God secures that which is pledged, just as the call always creates what is intended. And this is the way Paul defends the thesis of verse 6, that the word of God has not failed. His word and promises have not and cannot fail because they are based on his call, which is always effective, and on his promise, which is guaranteed. So when Paul quotes God saying, through, Abraham, or through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he is emphasizing God's own initiative in creating his covenant people, not on the basis of their natural descendants, but by God's supernatural intervention. Mere genetic descent is not what counts, but being divinely chosen. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. By divine election, God's sovereign choice of his people, to be the child of the promise. Physical ancestry is not enough to make one a member of God's people. One must be among the children of the promise to belong to God. 
In fact, physical ancestry is not even a requirement. Galatians 3, 7-9, Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So also John the Baptist warned the Jewish people of his day to put no stock in their racial heritage, claiming Abraham as their father. Luke 3.8, he preaches, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The fact that God was very selective in choosing who to save and create into his own people does not stop with Isaac. Verse 10 to 12. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, someone might say, well, Ishmael had done something wrong. Something the Bible doesn't mention, but, but he did something wrong and it disqualified him from God's call. Or they might remember that later in Abraham's life, God clarifies that the son of the promise would come from his wife, Sarah. Ishmael's mother was the Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, Maybe that's why God rejected him. And so comes this next example. Jacob and Esau puts these objections to rest, illustrating with particular clarity the principle of grace rather than race. Three particulars in the scriptural story about God's choice of Jacob over Esau provide powerful support for Paul's insistence that membership in the covenant family of God comes only as a result of God's effective call. Verse 10, they both shared the same father and mother, and yet only one was chosen by God. They were born at the same time. This illustrates the freedom of God in choosing whom he wishes and confirms the notion that the ethnic descendants of Abraham aren't all recipients of the promises of God. A winnowing process has been in effect from the very inception of Israel's history. Some were chosen, some were not. Jacob and Esau is the perfect example. Skipping over the second particular, because the, third one, the, the second one is what we really want to d- dive into. Skipping over the second for a moment, the third particular is verse 12 she was told the older will serve the younger. Had it been that the younger would serve the older, this would fit perfectly well with their culture and custom. It would have fit with what was considered the natural order of things in the ancient Near Eastern culture. By reversing this order, God has made it clear that it was His choice, not human preference or custom, that was the determining factor as far as the outworking of His purpose is concerned. And then the third particular, but the second in Paul's order, is verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
Now, Paul makes it exceedingly clear here. God's choice had nothing whatsoever to do with any inherent value or merit in either Esau or Jacob. It was not natural capacity, religious devotion, or even faith that determined their respective destinies. After all, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, when God selected Jacob over Esau. Any attempt, church, to explain the election of Jacob over Esau on the basis of God's foresight of Jacob's good works or Jacob's choice is to reverse everything Paul is saying here and turn the text on its head. Paul is very carefully and specifically explaining that it was not Jacob's choice or Jacob's works that saved him, only the sovereign choice of God who chooses. To come up with some apologetic that makes this make no sense doesn't help us. We just must hear the word of God, and and it's us who needs to change if, if we don't like it. The choice has nothing to do with the actual good or potential good, the actual evil or potential evil of Jacob and Esau. It has to do with the purpose of God. It is of his sovereign good pleasure that one man is elect while the other is passed over. And this has nothing whatsoever to do with virtue, foreseen or otherwise, of these two individuals. And if we will read this church as Paul has intended, here is where you should be asking, how can this be? How can this be fair? Remember, this is the exact expected response. So if that's where you're at, then you're understanding appropriately. If you don't get to the point of of saying, how could that possibly fare, then you're not understanding Paul. So these apologies that say, well, Paul doesn't really mean that God chose Jacob over Esau, and Paul doesn't really mean that Jacob didn't do anything right. They would never get to this question. They'd never get to the question that says, how, what shall we say then, verse 14? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see how trying to to take the sting out of this would then make none of this make any sense? So if there's a sting here, if if you're like, how can this be fair? then you're in the right spot right now. You're right where Paul wants you. This response is expected because of our incomplete knowledge of God and, and his purposes. And our incomplete knowledge of God and of his purposes actually compels this response. The Holy Spirit, as he inspired Paul to write this, knew that this would be the reader's response, and so he plans accordingly. If we hear and believe the Word of God here, we are granted precious insight into the character of God, and we can grow in relationship with Him. If we hear and believe, if we are taught by the Holy Spirit, this will open up our understanding of the entire Scripture. This is what God hopes to grant to us with what Paul has written here. Paul emphatically states that Jacob and Esau had done nothing to motivate God's choice. And yet, God did make a choice. And what was the basis for that choice? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. 
What God did in the case of Isaac's sons was done in order that his plan, which was based on his choice, might stand. Remember, this section begins, verse 6, with, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word in verse 11, translated continue, or sometimes remain, functions as an antonym to the verb verb failed in verse 6. God's word does not fail. Rather, it continues. It remains. God has made certain that his word will continue and accomplish all of his will through the electing of his people. If God's plan rested on the virtue or activity of Jacob, then his plan would be in constant jeopardy. Remember, he had already announced what would happen for Jacob to his mother before he was born. How can God then leave that in the hands of Jacob? How can God say, this is how it's going to turn out, then cross his fingers and hope Jacob does all the things that's going to make that turn out? No, he has already spoken it beforehand, before he's even born. The stability of God's word rests on the sureness of his electing plan. It cannot be thwarted. It must prevail. It is not as though the word of God ever fails. Humans cannot annul God's promise, hold it back or cancel it out, because it is not based on their actions. It is not based on their works. It is not based on their choices, but on God's will and intention. Earlier in Romans, when it comes to righteousness, Paul contrasts faith and works. But here, when it comes to salvation, it is not faith but God's effective call, which stands in contrast to works. Verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. When it comes to making us righteous, God does this through faith, not by works. But when it comes to deciding who will be saved, it's not our faith that makes the decision, but it is God. It is not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul's failure to insert human faith as the decisive and ultimate basis for God's election, indicates that God's call and election are prior to and the grounds of human faith. One is made righteous by faith, Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But one's calling and election are not the result of faith, but the result of God's unconditional choosing. Jacob was chosen or elected to enjoy the promises of God. Not because he had faith. This was before he was even born. God chose to love Jacob, though Jacob did not deserve it. Just as God had chosen to love Isaac when Isaac was no more lovely than Ishmael. Remember, Abraham himself was a pagan worshiping false gods and he was called by God from among his pagan people. Now, Paul could have simply focused on God's grace here, that God was loving and graceful, and and he lavished this all on Jacob, but instead he also has something to say about Esau, quoting Malachi 1, verse 2, Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Most of us are comfortable with reading that God chose and loved Jacob. It is something stated 
pretty regularly in Scripture, that God chose and loved people. But many of us are quite uncomfortable with the idea that God hated Esau. Whenever the Bible speaks of God choosing someone, the logical conclusion is that this means that there are others who are, are not chosen. That's, that's fairly simple logic. Consider the creation and election of Israel as God's chosen people. What, what are the implications of that statement? If God created and chose Israel to be his chosen people, the natural and intended conclusion, and also one explicitly stated in Amos 3.2, is that all other nations are not God's chosen people. This is the logical conclusion of saying God chose a special people for himself, is that the other people weren't God's chosen special people. It offers an immediate contrasting situation when God says he's chosen someone. So not often does the Bible tell us the alternate fact but here he does. Here he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what did it mean that God hated Esau? Some have said, and I think maybe it's a good suggestion, merely it means that God withholds his love and grace from Esau, and then he calls that hate. It's because he chose Jacob, and, and overlooking Esau is kind of a way of saying he, he hates him. But let's look and see what was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Malachi 1, 2-4, which Paul quotes here. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What does he mean by that? I have laid waste to his hill country, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Malachi describes the hate, God's hatred of Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, in active terms. He lays waste to their land. He takes their inheritance from them. He shatters them. He tears down whatever they build, and he commits himself that this is always going to be the way he is with them. He will be angry with them. They are cursed forever. God's hatred toward the people of Esau in this passage is not merely a withholding of his love. In the language of Romans 1, this is an outpouring of his wrath. God has chosen Jacob. And Paul contrasts Jacob, who was under God's grace without deserving it at all, with Esau, who was under God's wrath. The language of hating Esau is thus perfectly appropriate and means exactly what it appears to mean. The, the writers of Scripture didn't make a mistake with that word. The translators didn't make a mistake translating the Greek word hated for the English word hated. It means what it means. Jacob received God's promises, and not due to any works he had done or would do. It was not based on Jacob's choice. He was not even born, but solely on God's choice that Jacob would receive every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. Without this election, this choice of God, the gospel of grace alone, which we, all we Protestants claim to believe, does not even exist. 
Jacob's salvation and ours is not dependent on works or circumstances of birth, but God who chooses and saves. This is what we mean, and Protestants always meant when they said salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. That it was always and entirely the work of God, and not even in part our work. And Jacob and Esau are the perfect example of this. Chosen by God, not based on anything they had done or anything they would chosen or even a faith that they had, but by God's choosing. Now, I'm loath to leave you this morning without a full-orb teaching on the doctrine of unconditional election. You uh, could just be dangerous now at this point. There are so many disclaimers that must also attend it. And so I'll only remind you that we aren't finished with Romans 9 to 11, and there is so much more to say. There are many questions that this teaching brings up, questions that Paul has predicted, but questions nonetheless. Of course, this raises the question, is there an arbitrariness in God? Is He capricious? Do His choices border on the irrational with no legitimate reason whatsoever? Of course not. God is a God of reason. He does nothing without reason. It is opposite to the character of God to operate in any sort of capricious manner, and His decisions are always made in accordance with His character. But there's a tendency to see here God as arbitrary or unreasonable in the doctrine of election because of how blunt these scriptures are in making it so very clear that there is no reason in the elect why God has chosen them. But remember, just because Scripture is really clear and emphatic about that there's no reason in Jacob why God chose him, it doesn't say there's no reason at all. God has a reason for doing what he does, but the point here is that the reason does not lie within us. That is clear. It is also vitally important that we do not now ignore what the rest of the Bible teaches and conclude that human decisions are a charade, insignificant or trivial. Just because you don't save yourself by your decisions doesn't mean that your decisions won't matter. Of course they do. The Bible is full of passages that tell you that your decisions matter. There's just not a single scripture that tells you that your salvation is based on your, on your decisions. God has created us moral agents to make choices that matter. And so the Pauline view of predestination never lessens human responsibility. And anyone who teaches that is teaching a false doctrine that is not Christian at all. Any sort of fatalism, any sort of what you do doesn't matter, anyone that says prayer doesn't matter or evangelism doesn't matter or your choices don't matter because it all just works out the way God wants it to is a fatalist, not a Christian. So we have to embrace what Paul teaches here and also what the whole rest of the Bible teaches as well. Finally, We must not make the mistake of reading this text as though human beings are a blank slate which God writes on. It is not as though we started out pure. It is not as though Jacob and Esau were both innocent, pure babes and then God decided to condemn one and save the other. God's mercy is extended to sinners His rebel enemies who all deserve to perish because of their sin and cosmic rebellion. No one deserves to be saved. 
for all are under the condemnation of God. If God delivers justice to everybody, all of us will be damned. Jesus taught Romans 6, or sorry, Romans, John 6, 65 to 66. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, this, this teaching has been offensive ever since God started making this claim. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And at this point, many of his disciples were like, nope, I'm out. But the point is, our natural state of sinfulness is one of utter moral dereliction. We do not have the moral power to come to Jesus if left to ourselves because we have already rebelled. We have already turned against God wholesale as humanity. We have become his enemies. The gift of grace with which predestination is concerned means that God gives the ability to come to Jesus Christ to some people. He does not give that ability to everyone. He gave it to Jacob. He withheld it from Esau. We must, sit on, we must sit with this. It is absolutely essential that we understand that God Almighty owes us nothing. We have no claim upon grace. If we had, then, then we wouldn't be talking about grace. We'd be talking about justice. That, that word grace, by definition, is, is something that God is never obliged to give, but something He gives freely and voluntarily anyway, loving his enemies, causing us to be adopted into his family, granting us the gift of faith that we might entrust ourselves to him and so become righteous. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as this week and next we tackle some of the most hard-to-stomach verses in the Bible. I pray that you would begin to show us through our study this week as we look at all different areas of the Bible that this is consistent with your word throughout, that you are always talking about choosing some. And Lord, we are, are indebted to you because without your grace, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Without this special act of mercy through Christ Jesus, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally destroyed, us and our children. But instead, you have shown mercy to some. And for this, I pray that we would worship you and glorify you and love you because of your undeserved love you have shown to us. Grant us understanding by your Spirit. For mental assent will not get us there this morning. But show us, we pray, who you are through your Word and by your Spirit, that we may worship you rightly, teach about you rightly, and love you as you deserve. We ask this for the glory of Christ. Amen.